0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, murder, and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Luke Ladmiral woke up to the phone ringing. He immediately suspected the worst. Anyone calling at 4 a.m. had to be bringing bad news. He picked up the receiver and stepped out of the bedroom before the noise woke his wife. Though he'd braced himself, he was still shocked when he heard what had happened. Jean-Claude Roman's house was on fire. His friend had been inside when the flames started, along with his wife, Florence, and their two children. They were being rushed to the hospital. It wasn't clear whether anyone had survived. Luke sat in stunned silence for a moment before hanging up the phone. Eventually, he steeled himself to get up and get dressed. As he buttoned his shirt, he thought about the last time he'd heard from Jean-Claude. Just a few days earlier, his wife told him Jean-Claude had stopped by looking for him, wanting to talk, but Luke had missed him. He was still at work. Lost in thought, Luke climbed into his car and drove to the hospital. On the way, He saw smoke in the distance coming from the Romans family farmhouse. He wondered what Jean-Claude wanted to talk to him about or what he'd wanted to confess. Hi, I'm Laney Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. This is our second episode on Jean-Claude Ramon. Last week, we heard how Jean-Claude lived a secret double life for nearly two decades, He told his family he was a research physician with the World Health Organization, but in reality, he was an unemployed swindler, making a living by bilking family members out of their life savings. He may have even resorted to murdering his father-in-law to cover it all up. This week, we'll explore how Jean-Claude's lives finally went down in flames, as well as the aftermath of his shocking crimes. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater at 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona. Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them
1: on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. During the winter of 1992, 38 year old Jean Claude Ramon hardly got out of bed while his wife was out and his children were at school. He was languishing, heartsick over the end of his affair with his lover, Corinne, but his relationship problems were the least of his worries. He had spent the previous two decades lying to his friends and family about being a doctor. For years, he'd lived in fear that he might one day be exposed as a fraud. He had discouraged people from asking questions about his career, claiming that he preferred to keep his personal and professional lives separate. But the deception was getting more and more difficult to maintain. Sometime that December, Jean-Claude's wife Florence ran into a woman whose husband actually worked at the World Health Organization. She mentioned a Christmas party for employees and their families to Florence, asking if she planned to attend with Jean-Claude. According to this woman, Florence looked disturbed by the question. She murmured. This time, I really should get annoyed with my husband." It's not clear whether Florence confronted Jean-Claude about the party, but either way, she was likely having doubts about his reasons for keeping her and the children away from his workplace. This wasn't her only cause for suspicion around that time. Jean-Claude served as a member of his children's school board, Shortly before Christmas vacation, the board president tried to contact Jean-Claude at work to discuss an issue with one of the teachers. He tried to look up Jean-Claude's name in the World Health Organization directory, but couldn't find it. A few days later, he ran into Florence on the street and mentioned it to her. She said she talked to Jean-Claude about it, though it's unclear if she actually confronted him. Even if Laurence wasn't starting to ask questions, Jean-Claude knew he would soon be discovered. If these close calls didn't expose him, his dwindling bank accounts would. A few days before Christmas of 1992, he faced even more questions. His former mistress, Corinne, invited him to come visit her in Paris. Although he was probably no longer sleeping with her, they had tried to maintain a friendship, Not long after they broke up, she'd even given him 900,000 francs to invest on her behalf. Secretly, Jean-Claude had simply taken her money and spent it instead. The two had a pleasant dinner together at first, but at the end of the night, Corinne dropped a bombshell. She wanted her money back. As always, Jean-Claude stayed calm in the moment, He'd promised that he'd get her money and give it to her shortly after the new year. He told her he was attending a dinner party around that time and invited her to come along and pick up her check then. Corinne agreed. She had no idea that behind his cool facade, Jean-Claude was panicking. Before I continue with Jean-Claude's psychology... Please note that I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. The threat of financial ruin may be a precursor to violence, particularly within families. Psychologist Joseph Salona has said that money and financial success and security are very closely tied to physical and psychological well-being and self-esteem. Sociologist Catherine Van Warmer examined a cluster of murder-suicides shortly after the financial crisis of 2008. She wrote, Employment difficulties are pronounced in the backgrounds of the perpetrators in those cases. Interestingly, around half of the family murder-suicides were carried out by men with no known history of domestic abuse. Typically, these men had been successful members of the community who found their lives unraveling, Investigation into their backgrounds showed that these husbands and fathers were often in situations of seemingly insurmountable economic crisis. Jean-Claude must have felt that the walls were closing in. After his trip to Paris, he drove to his parents' house and picked them up so they could spend the Christmas holidays at his farmhouse. While there, he stopped by his childhood bedroom and collected several mementos from his youth, old journals and love letters. Later, when he got back home, he went out into the backyard and burned them. With nowhere else to turn, Jean-Claude contemplated suicide. He tried composing a note, but every time he pictured Florence reading it, he broke down in tears. He was never able to finish it. He eventually decided to delay his plan to die by suicide, believing it would be too cruel to do it over the holidays. The romans spent New Year's Eve in Strasbourg with friends. They followed that with a ski weekend in La Fusilla. The Monday after they returned from skiing, Jean-Claude got a call from his mother. She told him that her account, which she had access to, was overdrawn. Jean-Claude dismissed her worries and promised to take care of it. That afternoon, he flew to Paris to leave a message for Corinne. He was already scheduled to see her later in the week for the fake dinner party. But at that point, his future seemed so uncertain that he didn't want to wait. He left a bottle of perfume and a book at her office. He put a suggestive letter inside so that she'd open to a page describing a suicide. He then left Paris that same evening. The next day, on Tuesday, January 5th, 38-year-old Jean-Claude spent the morning at home doing research. He read about drugs and poisons. He then made a stop at the local pharmacy, where he placed an order for barbiturates, telling the pharmacist that he needed them for his research. A day later, he traveled to Lyon and withdrew 2,000 francs from one of his accounts. Then he went to a gun shop and purchased tear gas, a stun gun, ammunition, and a silencer for his 22 caliber rifle. He had the items gift wrapped. Jean-Claude paid for his purchases and strode out of the shop. In his hands, all wrapped up in a nice bow, he held everything he needed to commit an act of horrifying bloodshed, but none of it felt real. He would rather pretend that everything was normal. He'd spent the last two decades doing exactly that and it was terrifyingly easy to push his troubles out of his mind once again. Maybe everything was normal. He'd gotten out of tight scrapes before. Perhaps nothing bad would happen after all. He thought about killing himself for a long time now and yet he was still here. But as he loaded the weapons into his car, doubts crept back into his mind. He was so practiced at concealing the truth, even from himself, that he didn't really know what he was capable of. He couldn't even be sure Jean-Claude Roman was real at all. Maybe he couldn't do anything without putting on another mask first. Now that the character he played for so long was slipping away, he had no idea who or what would take its place. He felt hollow. He was a husk, a shambling heap of lies and the remnants of his shattered ego. How could anyone miss a person who was never real in the first place? While Jean-Claude was purchasing weapons, Florence was at home having tea with two of her friends. One of them later recalled that during the visit, she gazed at a picture of Jean-Claude as a boy and said, Look at those eyes there can't be anything bad behind those eyes. It was as if she were trying to reassure herself. Her friends didn't know what to make of the remarks, and before they could ask, Florence changed the subject. Three days later, on Friday, January 8th, Jean-Claude picked up the barbiturates he had ordered. That afternoon, the family went shopping for a present for one of his children's friends, who was having a birthday party the next day. They ate dinner together at the food court in the shopping center. When they got home, the children went straight to bed. Florence spoke to her mother on the phone for a while. Jean-Claude later said that the conversation upset Florence. Her mother complained about being lonely and lectured her daughter for not visiting more often. After she hung up and began to cry, Jean-Claude sat next to Florence on the couch and tried to comfort her. He then claimed that he could not remember exactly what happened next, but at some point, Jean-Claude decided that it was time to move forward with his plan. Blood alcohol reports show that Florence went to sleep intoxicated. It may be that she wanted to calm down after arguing with her mother, or perhaps Jean-Claude encouraged her to drink in order to incapacitate her. As author Emmanuel Carrere reports in his book about the case, the adversary, Florence, almost never drank. With Jean-Claude's children asleep and his wife distracted, Jean-Claude likely sensed that it was the perfect night to act. He quietly grabbed a rolling pin and tested its weight in his hand. It had been left out because the children were using it to play with clay earlier that evening. Jean-Claude gripped the rolling pin and crept up to the side of the bed next to Florence. In a flash, he brought it down on his wife's skull, beating her to death in a matter of moments. He left her body in their bed. Once she was dead, Jean-Claude realized there was no turning back. Coming up, Jean-Claude's weekend of horrific violence continues. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become?
1: Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2.
0: Play it now with Game Pass.
1: This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including Headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to racketon.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
0: Now, back to the story. Sometime in the early morning hours of Saturday, January 9th, 1993, 38-year-old Jean-Claude Ramon murdered his wife, Laurence, beating her to death with a rolling pin, It's unknown what he did immediately afterward. Perhaps he went to sleep. Early that morning, he answered a telephone call from one of their friends, who asked whether Florence would be attending mass that evening. Jean-Claude told her that they would be out of town. The telephone ring woke up Jean-Claude's children, five-year-old Antoine and seven-year-old Caroline. They bounced into the room, excited for the start of the weekend and the birthday party they planned to attend later. Jean-Claude shooed them out of the bedroom where their mother lay still on the bed, telling them that Florence was sleeping. The kids went downstairs and watched television with Jean-Claude in the living room. Jean-Claude later said, After I killed Florence, I knew that I was also going to kill Antoine and Caroline, and that those moments in front of the television were the last that we would spend together. I cuddled with them. I must have said sweet things to them like, I love you. After watching television for about an hour, Caroline noticed that Jean-Claude seemed cold, a common sign of shock. The girl advised her father to get his bathrobe. Jean-Claude went upstairs and Caroline followed him. He asked the seven-year-old girl to go to her bedroom and lie face down on the bed. He put a pillow over her head pretending that they were playing a game together. Then he took his rifle, which he had equipped with his newly purchased silencer, and shot her. Afterward, he went downstairs for Antoine. He tried to get the boy to drink some of the barbiturates he had purchased diluted in water, but Antoine refused them. Jean-Claude brought the boy upstairs, had him lie down on his bed, and shot him, just like Caroline. Caroline. Jean-Claude could never explain why he felt the need to destroy the children he claimed to love. Eventually, as Emmanuel Carrere shows in his book, one of Jean-Claude's psychiatrists concluded that Jean-Claude couldn't distinguish between himself and the people he considered to be his love objects. The report explained that in Jean-Claude's view, he was part of them and they of him in a cosmogonic system that was all-embracing, undifferentiated, and closed. At that level, there is no longer much difference between suicide and homicide. This fits the psychological profile of many so-called family annihilators. Psychiatrist Shervert Fraser labeled this crime suicide by proxy His theory is described in the criminology book, The Will to Kill Making Sense of Senseless Murder. The authors write The killer sees his loved ones as an extension of himself. He feels personal responsibility for the well being of his wife and children and sees no other way out of his predicament. At that moment, Jean Claude felt that his life was over. His family was destroyed. If his life had to end, so did theirs. Killing his wife and children wasn't enough. He couldn't bear the thought of any loved ones discovering who he really was. At the house, he retrieved his rifle. He wrapped it back up and took it to his car. Then he made the hour-long drive to his parents' house in Clairvue-les-Lac. When he got there, he had lunch with them. Perhaps he wanted to enjoy one last meal together. Afterward, He lured his father to his old bedroom upstairs and asked him to point out a malfunctioning air vent down by the floor. His father knelt down to look at it with his back to Jean-Claude. Jean-Claude raised his rifle and shot him twice. He then called his mother upstairs. With the silencer attached to the rifle, she apparently hadn't heard the gunshots. But even so, it seems he couldn't convince her to turn around, as he had with all the others. She was the only one whose wounds indicated that she was facing Jean-Claude when she was shot. Even then, Jean-Claude wasn't finished spilling blood. When his parents' dog raced into the room and began whimpering beside the bodies, he killed the animal as well. He later said, I thought Caroline should have him with her. She adored him. Jean-Claude covered his parents with blankets, washed his rifle and placed it on his father's gun rack. Then he changed his clothes. He had brought his suit with him. He had plans to meet Corinne that evening and he intended to keep them. Four hours later, Jean-Claude arrived in Paris. He met Corinne in front of a church where she was attending mass with her daughters. After the service, he accompanied them to her apartment where they left the children with a babysitter. Corinne got into Jean-Claude's car and they started to drive to the dinner party he had invited her to. Right away, she asked about her money. He explained that there was a delay, but she would get it on Monday. Corinne accepted his answer. But as they drove further from Paris and into the forest of Fontainebleau, she grew concerned. Around 10.30 p.m., Jean-Claude claimed he was lost, In reality, he was driving around aimlessly in the woods, killing time. He eventually stopped the car at a picnic area, telling Corinne he needed to find the phone number of the party host. He rummaged for a moment in the trunk. Then he came around to the passenger seat to talk to Corinne. He told her he wasn't able to find the phone number, but he had discovered a necklace meant to be a present for her. He asked her to step out of the car so he could put it around her neck. She stepped out reluctantly and he told her to close her eyes. As soon as she did, she felt the spray of tear gas filling her nose. Disoriented, Corinne lunged at Jean-Claude, fighting for her life. Jean-Claude jabbed her in the stomach with the stun gun and she fell back against the side of the car. Corinne lay twitching on the ground. She begged Jean-Claude not to kill her reminding him of her young daughters. Then, despite the tear gas, she opened her eyes and stared up at him. Somehow, the sight of her stare, direct and pleading, moved Jean-Claude. He abruptly stopped his attack. Jean-Claude froze. He watched Corinne convulse on the ground, her eyes boring into him. He heard his own voice repeating her name over and over again. He saw that she was trembling, and he reached out, gently wanting to soothe her. He couldn't explain what happened to him. He knew he'd lost the fight with the devil inside of him. It had pushed him to coldly murder his family. He was past the point of no return, and yet suddenly, he lost his nerve. The monster was gone. He couldn't kill Corinne, not with her watching him with those beautiful, tear-streaked eyes. She looked so confused, like she was searching for some kind of explanation. He had to tell her something, it didn't matter what. As a final act of kindness, he had to spare her and face his fears. He wasn't sure what to say, but he'd think of something. He was well-practiced at lying. Corinne was dazed and traumatized after the attack. Jean-Claude, acting as shocked as she was, delicately convinced her to get into the car, and they drove back to Paris together. Jean-Claude claimed he didn't remember what he had just done. As Corinne calmed down on the drive, she tried to talk to him about what had happened. He fell back on one of his oldest lies, telling her that he had cancer. Now, he claimed the disease was causing erratic behavior. He said it had started to affect his brain. He claimed he had recently been having blackouts and behavioral changes. He vowed to seek help before dropping her off at her apartment. Then, just a few minutes after leaving, he called her from a phone booth. He was still worried she would call the police. He insisted that the attack had been a sudden lapse and that he hadn't planned on killing her, despite the tear gas in his trunk. To prove his point, he claimed that if it were premeditated, he would have murdered her in the apartment and killed her daughters as well. The thought chilled Corinne to the bone. More nervous than ever, Jean-Claude drove back home to Previsson. It was Sunday morning when he arrived. By 11 a.m., he began to worry that friends might stop by if they thought the family was home. He drove his car to the parking lot of a shopping center and left it there, trying to make it look like the family was out. He left a confession in his car, scrawled on the back of an envelope. He walked back home, running into the pharmacist on his way. They said hello to each other in passing. Nothing about his behavior seemed strange. Jean-Claude seemed like a man on a casual stroll. When he got back home, he put a tape in the VCR and sat in front of the television. For the next three hours, he recorded the programs playing on the TV. There was nothing significant about what he watched. He channel surfed, switching between sports and news programs until the tape was full. He apparently wanted to record over the previous contents of the tape. It's not clear what the tape originally contained, It may have been home videos of the family. Some later speculated that it contained pornography. Whatever the case, Jean-Claude never explained why he taped over these memories. Besides recording television, Jean-Claude also placed repeated phone calls to Corinne. She finally answered on the 10th try. They talked about what had happened the night before. He apologized for attacking her, and again promised that he'd return her money the next day. He begged her not to go to the police over the attack because she believed that it was caused by his cancer. She agreed. After hanging up, Jean-Claude stalled for several more hours until after midnight. Then he went up into the attic and soaked the floor in gasoline. He did the same in the bedrooms, pouring gasoline on the bodies of Florence and his children. Sometime around 4 a.m., he put on his pajamas and started several fires in the attic and bedrooms. As the flames crackled, Jean-Claude went into his own bedroom and took 20 capsules of an expired barbiturate he found in the house. He could have taken the stronger barbiturates he had purchased from the drugstore, but he didn't. Perhaps despite the suicidal thoughts he claimed to profess, he didn't really want to be unconscious. After taking the pills, he lay down on the bed for a few moments and closed his eyes. Outside, street cleaner saw the flames in the attic and called the fire department. When help arrived, Jean-Claude dragged himself to the window and opened it. The firefighters quickly discovered him and raised a ladder to his window. By the time his rescuers reached him, He'd lost consciousness due to the pills and smoke inhalation. While he was rushed in an ambulance to the hospital in Geneva, firefighters discovered the bodies of his wife and children in the bedrooms. An examination soon revealed the truth. They hadn't died in the fire. Florence's head injury and the children's bullet wounds proved that they had been murdered beforehand. Later that morning, Jean-Claude's uncle went to his parents' house to tell them the news about the fire. Inside, he found their bodies. The discovery left investigators with hundreds of questions, but the only man who could answer them, Jean-Claude Roman, was lying in a coma. It wasn't clear whether he'd ever regain consciousness or if the mystery surrounding his family's death would die with him. Coming up, authorities try to solve Jean-Claude's labyrinth of secrets. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 platinum jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up the 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. On the morning of January 10th, 1993, firefighters made a horrifying discovery at the farmhouse of 38-year-old Jean-Claude Roman. Amongst the flaming wreckage of the home, rescuers found the bodies of Jean-Claude's wife, Florence, and his two young children. They had been murdered. The only one in the home still alive was Jean-Claude himself. He had fallen into a coma after ingesting sleeping pills and inhaling smoke from the fire. While he was unconscious, Police learned that his parents had also been murdered in their home, more than 50 miles away. Investigators immediately tried to learn as much as they could about the supposed doctor. They wanted to know if he had any enemies who might've targeted his family. But as they looked into Jean-Claude's background, they realized he wasn't who he seemed. He didn't work at the World Health Organization as he had been telling everyone in his life for years. He had never even graduated from medical school. Everything about Jean-Claude Roman was a sham. For nearly two decades, he had been terrified that one day the truth would come out. But a few days after the murders, when he slowly regained consciousness, he had no trouble lapsing back into his habit of lying. When police questioned him in his hospital bed, Jean-Claude invented a story that an intruder, dressed all in black, had snuck into his home and shot his family before setting the house on fire. When asked about his employment with the World Health Organization, Jean-Claude admitted that he did not work there. He claimed instead that he was employed as a consultant for a scientific company in Geneva. However, he had no evidence to verify the claim and couldn't even prove that the company existed. Police questioned him for seven hours. He told lie after lie clinging desperately to his respectable image. In fact, he seemed to care more about his waning reputation than his dead wife and children. It's likely that his lawyer convinced him that his deception was transparent. He couldn't lie his way out of the criminal investigation. Jean-Claude finally confessed. After his arrest for murder, Jean-Claude was held in a prison in Bourgogne-Bresse, France. He never appeared to be racked with guilt. Instead, he seemed comforted as if a great weight had been lifted from his shoulders. He later said, "'I have never been so free. "'Life has never been so beautiful. "'I am a murderer. "'I'm seen as the lowest possible thing in society.' but that's easier to bear than the 20 years of lies that came before. For the next few years, he prepared for his trial. Psychiatrists regularly visited him in prison and diagnosed him with narcissistic personality disorder. These doctors found that he was obsessed with how others viewed him. His reputation was his only concern. He didn't know who he was outside of other people's perception of him. One psychiatrist's report indicated that he will never, ever manage to be perceived as authentic and he himself fears that he will never know if he is. But it wasn't long before Jean-Claude settled on a new identity, a man of God. In December of 1994, police took him to his farmhouse in Previsson and asked him to reenact the crimes. While standing in his old home, The investigators replayed a message that had been left on his answering machine tape. It was from Florence and the children. They left the message during a summer holiday years before. In the message, Jean-Claude heard Florence say, "'Hi there, it's us. We arrived safely. We're waiting for you to join us. Be careful on the road. We love you.'" Jean-Claude said he gleaned a spiritual meaning from the recording. He decided that wherever his family was, they loved him and were waiting for him. In prison, he embraced prayer, fasting, and meditation. Although he still claimed to have dark thoughts, he abandoned any plans to die by suicide. He told psychiatrists that he had condemned himself to live. In spring of 1996, 42-year-old Jean-Claude Ramon prepared to face trial for his actions. He had admitted to killing his family, but the prosecution and defense argued over his mental state during the crimes and whether the murders were premeditated. Jean-Claude knew that however the trial went, he was likely to face years in prison. In a letter to author Emmanuel Carrere, who was writing a book about him, Jean-Claude said, I have the feeling that I won't have much of a future after that. In late June, the trial began. Journalists from around the country gathered to watch. A reporter for the newspaper La Monda opened their account of the trial with the phrase, It's not every day you get to see the face of the devil. A week later, at the end of his trial, Jean-Claude addressed the court. He apologized for not succeeding in his suicide, saying... I understand that my words and even my still being alive make the scandal of my actions worse. He begged for forgiveness. He addressed his family with the words, My Flo, my Caro, my Titu, my Papa, my Mama. You are here in my heart and it is this invisible presence that gives me the strength to speak to you. You know everything. And if anyone can forgive me, it is you I ask your forgiveness. After deliberating for over five hours, the jury returned to sentence Jean-Claude to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 22 years. Over time, Jean-Claude tried to move on and reinvent himself as someone new. He had professed mostly agnostic beliefs in the past, but while in prison, he dedicated himself to exploring his newfound spirituality. Jean-Claude knelt in his cell, willing himself to find peace. It was rarely quiet in prison. Other inmates often shouted and cursed late into the night. But by reflexively repeating his prayers, Jean-Claude found the silence inside himself. And before long, he could even see the face of God. It was the face of compassion. Jean-Claude reassured himself again and again that he had found forgiveness. After all, Jesus had expressed love for thieves and sinners. Why not for him too? As he meditated on God's love, Jean-Claude felt reality slip away. He embraced the soothing image of divine mercy. He had always struggled with his identity, but at the moment, it no longer seemed to matter who he was. It only mattered that he was forgiven. Jean-Claude joined a Catholic movement called the Intercessors and published a statement in their newsletter. He discussed the terrible family tragedy that had befallen him without taking responsibility for it and wrote that his new faith had released me from the exile of unspeakable suffering. According to a 1992 study by the National Council on Crime and Delinquency, religious participation in prison is common The study found that religious participation can help an inmate overcome the depression, guilt, and self-contempt that so often accompanies a prison sentence. Emmanuel Carrere, who corresponded with Jean-Claude, believed that Jean-Claude's religiosity was another persona. He says, The character of the respected researcher has been replaced by the no less gratifying character of the serious criminal on the road to mystical redemption. Jean-Claude continued to embrace religion over the next two decades in prison. Although he was up for parole in 2015, he did not initially obtain it. But in April of 2019, 26 years after the murders, he asked for a conditional supervised release. The request was granted. On June 28, 2019, 65-year-old Jean-Claude left prison and moved to a Benedictine monastery in a nearby village. His 2016 psychological assessment indicated that he was not likely to present a danger to society. But for the victim's families, Jean-Claude has permanently destroyed any credibility he might try to claim. Upon Jean-Claude's release, Florence's brother, Emmanuel Collet, Implied that his supposed piety was just another mask he had adopted to win approval and respect. He called Jean Claude an empty shell and regretted that he didn't finish his entire sentence. In another interview, Emmanuel Collet lamented The word free is hard to hear. For me, he's one. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. For more information on Jean-Claude Roman, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Adversary, a true story of a monstrous deception by Emmanuel Carrere extremely helpful to our research. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs.